Thanks for joining me today for a special episode where I explore surrogate partner therapy with certified surrogate partner, Andrew Hartman and licensed professional clinical counselor, Angela Porter. We go beyond the stigma and explore how surrogate partners help clients understand themselves, their worth, and what brings them closer and more connected in relationships. Want to know what surrogate partner therapy is all about? Keep listening. I'm Annalise Lucero, and this is The Good, The Bad, The Family. I'm excited to be joined by uh, my friend and peer, Angela, and as well as Andrew Hartman. Um, I'll do a little intro and then I'll let them both kind of share more about themselves. So Andrew is an interpersonal relationship consultant who specializes in recovery from trauma, and he's a thought leader in the field of surrogate partner therapy. Andrew has been practicing as a surrogate partner for 12 years and is also a member for surrogate partners in training. So I'm very excited to have you here today to talk about uh, surrogate partner therapy. And I invited my my friend and peer, Angela, who is a licensed professional clinical counselor counselor in New Mexico. She is the clinical supervisor at Albuquerque Family Counseling, and she supervises over 15 other therapists while working on her own caseload. That's exciting. Um, Angela has been treating couples and individuals for over 11 years. So I feel like small fries in this little conversation since I'm, I'm newer in my career as a marriage and family therapist, but I'm excited. So um, is there anything either of you would like to share more about yourselves so the listeners can kind of know more about you personally? Well, I'll go ahead. Um, My name's Andrew and I'm located outside of San Francisco in the San Francisco Bay Area. And as Annalise said, I've been practicing for 12 years and I'm really uh, interested in overcoming the misconceptions and spreading accurate information about this thing called surrogate partner therapy, which is often misunderstood. Um, Yeah, I'm Angela and... um... I'm super excited about this conversation. I was introduced to surrogate partnership um, quite a few years ago at um, Psychotherapy Networker Symposium. I attended a Tammy Nelson class and she had presenters in there um, that then Annalise and I reconnected with this year at Symposium in DC and got to chat with the group. And um, and so, yeah, I I find it fascinating and... um, and, and, and with that information is just the tip of the iceberg. So Andrew, I'm very excited to hear more. And, and yes, like you said, um, tear down some of those misconceptions and get some really good information out there. Yeah, well, I'm happy so, to be here. Thank you for having me. Oh gosh, absolutely. I think it's great to learn from the professionals who are in the field directly working on these services. So with that being said, Andrew, can you please give us the very, very beginnings? Cause I know most of my listeners will have never even heard of surrogate partner therapy. So can you please share with us what what is surrogate partner therapy? From the top down 30,000 foot perspective, surrogate partner therapy is for clients who have some sort of difficulty in the way they relate to other people, in the way they do relationships or intimacy, and they haven't been able to resolve this either from their own life experience or from verbal therapy alone. 
And it's not for everyone, but there are certain type of people that, you know, a lot of people learn how to do relationship and learn relationship skills by trying it, you know, by being in relationship and maybe making mistakes, hopefully learning from those mistakes. But there are some people that for various reasons haven't ever formed healthy relationships or learned healthy relationship skills. And that doesn't mean that it's a moral failing. There are really legitimate reasons why someone might not have done that. So they have some sort of issue that could be healed in the context of relationship, yet the issue itself prevents them from finding a supportive partner. Mm-hmm. prevents them from being in that relationship that could help them heal. So it's a catch-22. Mm-hmm. And surrogate partner therapy is a great solution for this catch-22 situation because we provide a context that's both realistic as well as safe and supportive enough that can allow them to take some risks and have some shifts that they haven't been able to do on their own. Mm -hmm. I I love this definition because I think it removes some of maybe the fear that I have as um, kind of coming from this like uh, kind of heteronormative background, Christian culture background that hears that sees maybe brief information about surrogate partner therapy and things like Ah, uh, that seems weird and not for me, but the way you explain it aligns so much with my systemic training of there's healing in relationships and that as a surrogate partner, you provide a very safe process for going through healing and learning how to be in safe and healthy relationships. I think part of the misunderstanding that people sometimes have is because they think of surrogate partner therapy the way that it was back in the 1960s when it was originally introduced by Masters and Johnson. Mm-hmm. You know, back then, they saw it as a treatment for sexual dysfunction. And it was introduced in their 1970s book, Human Sexual Inadequacy. And that book was all about you know, treatment for various types of sexual dysfunction. And as a result, uh, success was measured with intercourse, you know, or penis and vagina intercourse. Mm-hmm. And the the field has really evolved and and changed in the in the sixty years since it was introduced. Now we don't really view it as a treatment for sexual dysfunction, you know, that can be included in a certain context because that is part of relationship. Um, And so consequently, success is not measured by being able to adhere to some heteronormative script. Mm -hmm. Instead, success is measured by how well are we able to achieve the objectives that were stated at the beginning of the therapy. Right. So it's not just about sexuality. Mm -hmm. And um, if it is, if it does involve sexuality, there are a whole lot of other things that need to be done first Mm -hmm. to make sure we get to a to make sure we create a suitable container where working with 
sexual material can be addressed in a way that's healing and transformative. If you just throw someone in bed with a sexual partner, that's not going to be helpful and could even be re-traumatizing. Mm-hmm. And so a big part, you know, uh, something that I haven't mentioned yet is surrogate partner therapy always involves three people. So the client is seeing both a surrogate partner and also having appointments with a verbal therapist or clinician. And a, there's communication between all three of us. And a big part of the collaborative decision-making process that is inherent in surrogate partner therapy is, are we ready to take the next step in a way that is healing and corrective, as opposed to reinforcing habits and patterns that aren't helpful? Oh, absolutely. So tell me a little bit more about this process with the therapist, because I know when I was first introduced to this at the Psychotherapy Network Symposium, Angela and I, working in the same practice, had a conversation about how how could this realistically happen in our community? Are, is this even an option? So as the therapist side, I think we're both kind of questioning that. And I don't know, Angela, if you kind of wanted to specify more about that curiosity of like, how do you how do you assess if this is the right client? And then how does a therapist begin that process with you? Okay, well, a good thing to, a good way to assess clients is to look particularly for that situation where they have some sort of barrier to intimacy, something that's getting in their way. And that barrier themselves is preventing from them from having relationships. This typically looks like um, past trauma, right? That might, I imagine anything that's going to keep someone from being willing to take the risks to go out and form connections. It might be various types of fear and anxiety. They might be dealing with social conditioning about, they have beliefs about what it means to be the gender they are or what sex is or what what their role is in relationship mm. you know so sometimes people have certain ideas about those that aren't conducive to forming connections and having healthy relationships so it's a whole so host of things um another thing is that someone might get to a point in their life where they have less experience than might be expected for someone in their situation. Mm-hmm. Oh, tell right. me more about that. Well, if someone is a person in their 40s, 50s, even 60s, who hasn't had any relationships in their life, is what might be called a, a late life virgin or someone with naivete around sex or relationships. <laughs> then they're dealing with actually three different levels of impact. They're they're dealing with whatever prevented them from forming those relationships in the first place, which is usually one of the other things that I mentioned. But then they're also getting responses from other people, right? They have to deal with... uh, the way other people respond to them, as well as 
cultural conceptions at large. And I'll call this stigma, right? So they not only have, and this also shows up with someone who has a disability, right? Just the disability itself might prevent someone from having opportunities to form connections. But beyond that, they have to deal with how other people in the culture at large responds to them, right? Because our culture tends to desexualize anyone with a, uh, a disability. Mm-hmm. Our culture tends to desexualize a, a wide variety of people. They might desexualize anyone who's not young, healthy, able-bodied, even slender. Mm-hmm. Um, so. So then we're dealing with the stigma, and then we also start to um, maybe have some shame as a result of being in a culture where we're not validated for who we are. And as a result, I might start to expect uh, rejection everywhere I turn. I might start to think that I'm not worthy of connection and acceptance, and so therefore I might not be willing to take those risks, right? So the three levels that I'm dealing with are the original issue, but then also the stigma and any internalized shame that I might have as a result of, you know, getting faced with that stigma. (laughs) Now you had asked about kind of what it looks like. Typically, ideally, the process starts out with all three of us meeting together in the same room, the therapist, the surrogate, and the client. And that is valuable to introduce the surrogate partner as a clinical partner and a member of the team uh, to establish that we will all be working together as a team and that there will be open communication between all of us. And then also to get really clear about what the goals are. It's a goal-driven process. And so we want to make sure that we are really clear about what it is that we're doing here. What are are some typical goals that you see? And then I'm curious, too, about what, what does a session look like with, I mean... I kind of understand that with the therapist, the client and you, but then when you're not with the therapist, what are, what does that session look like? What is a typical. The, what the, what the uh, session looks like changes over the time as we go through the work, the, the whole objective of this is for the surrogate partner to form a temporary relationship with the client. And that's why it's typically understood that the client doesn't have their own partner. Okay. And this, this temporary relationship becomes the real life environment that gives the, the client the opportunity to take risks and try some things and do things differently than they have in the past. And it also gives the surrogate partner the opportunity to model healthy relationship skills, including authenticity and vulnerability. In fact, it's really the only modality that I'm aware of where relationship skills can be taught 
through example. Mm-hmm. Now, I said before, is even if there's a sexual issue that needs to be addressed, there's a whole lot of things that we need to take care of first. And I'd like to give an example to illustrate why this is so important. Early in my practice, way back about 2012, I had an appointment with a client and uh, this client was um, a female client. And incidentally, I work uh, predominantly with uh, clients who identify as women either cis and trans. However, there are surrogate partners of all different orientations and genders that are available to work with clients of all different orientations and genders. So in the session that I had with this client, I asked her if she would like to share a hug. And she said, yes. So we hugged and I continued with the rest of the session, not realizing that there was anything wrong. Mm -hmm. But then later she canceled her next appointment. And I am grateful to this day that she let me know why. What happened was when I asked her if she wanted to share a hug, she didn't want to, and yet she didn't feel comfortable saying no. So she did something she didn't want to do. I didn't, pick up on it. And after that, she didn't feel safe. Mm -hmm. So this made it really clear to me that there are certain things that we absolutely have to establish right at the beginning. We need to make sure that the client has the awareness, the self-awareness to know what they want and what they don't want. Once they have that awareness, they can use that internal compass as a guide to know how to proceed. They can start to move toward what they want and to set boundaries against what they don't want. And the way that people typically do this is through communication. So these uh, things, awareness, boundaries, and communication, Because they are such an essential foundation, and because these three words start with A, B, and C, I've started to call them the ABCs (laughs) of SPT. That's perfect. Right. So we need to start out with the ABCs. And I will start out with a whole bunch of different exercises, communication exercises, Uh, exercises that involve touch and and mindfulness as a way of establishing that the client has this awareness that we're able to work with boundaries, both setting boundaries and respecting other people's boundaries Mm -hmm. and communicating really well in a way that allows, uh, allows me to express my inner experience to a partner. So, um, and different surrogate partners will have different ways of teaching these skills, but I have a number that are my favorites. I'll use a lot of sensate focus 
uh, a lot of touch. Uh, I will use a lot of communication games, like one called May I Will You, where we practice making requests of each other back and forth. And, uh, and then I also incorporate elements of the Wheel of Consent, which is the work of, of Betty Martin. So this is what has to be done at the beginning. And then through touch, we gradually incorporate, we, we, we want the client to get a sense of what they like and what they don't want, or what they don't like, and then start to be able to be in agency in that, be empowered in having ways to ask for what they want and to have boundaries against what they don't want. Mm -hmm. That sort of process will often take months. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Mm -hmm. And it absolutely has to be done before we can address any content of physical intimacy mm -hmm. or, or sexuality. Mm -hmm. Angela, I'm curious, have you... Like in listening to this for me, and I'm wondering for you, are you thinking of how like empowering this could be for some of our clients to have an opportunity to explore the things we're trying to show and teach them, but in the context of like a more intimate partner relationship through surrogate partner therapy? Oh, absolutely. Listening to this, um, even Andrew, you going through the basics of awareness. I'm like, yep. And, and, and. I think I think you hit the big nail on the head there with talking about safety because a lot of my a lot of my clients are in couples and therefore having that triad the couple and and myself in the room there's maybe limited safety within that couple to be able to have awareness and share um what they need and want and so um it just kind of is reiterating in my head this kind of um, very, very basic but not simple idea of <laughs> a relationship, right? Of being able to say, um, I like this, I want this, this would feel really good, this wouldn't. And and doing that within the safety is as, as you're describing, um, to be able to say, not now. Or, or maybe not ever, but definitely not right now. But like, let me take a pause to consider that. And having having a partner in the room, surrogate as as it would be in this scenario, to pause and not get wrapped up in their feels about rejection or or any of those things that happen all of the time. So it's yeah, exactly. And surrogate partner therapy is somewhat similar to couples therapy. However, the therapist is working with a couple that was specifically constructed right. to, yeah. uh, to help one of them. And the other person, the, uh, the surrogate partner, can be seen as an ally, someone who has inside information into the functioning of the relationship dynamics and who is committed to putting aside their agendas mm -hmm. 
and, you know, putting, not being there to get their own needs met and hopefully having a high level of awareness about what's going on in the relationship dynamics and owning my own responses. This is actually one of the reasons why having the uh, the therapist as part of the triad is so important. Right? As a surrogate partner, I'm there supporting the therapeutic process, but I am also showing up as a human, as a person. Right. And... Um, and there are some times when I might need to talk some things over with the therapist to get clear about is what going on? Is that my stuff or is that the stuff mm-hmm. of the client? Right. Uh, and a big part of that. The question is, is this something that the surrogate partner brings into it as a result of their conditioning and their past experiences? or is this something that the partner is or the uh, the client is bringing with them? Because if it is something the client is bringing with them, then this is likely something that's going to show up in their future relationships. Yeah. And the whole purpose of surrogate partner therapy is to help someone learn skills that they can apply to future relationships. So in that way, the transference and the counter-transference that takes place between the client and the surrogate partner is a really valuable part of the process. Mm-hmm. It's not something to be avoided. It's a, a tool, a, a benefit to be exploited. Well, I think that that's a really important point, um, again, for like kind of this um drop in the bucket uh explanation that we have with this short podcast is that you as the surrogate partner are the surrogate partner is not a empty void for client to have their way with or do whatever whatever they want with or to live out some kind of um fantasy that that the surrogate person is a person just as you stated that um has boundaries and has opinions and has things as well and so i'm wondering andrew if you could speak to that a little bit as far as um i guess my curiosity is going towards obviously the safety piece for both partners or both people in 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 the dynamic um are I'm trying to think of a good way to ask this question for the surrogate partner, for the surrogate partner in this dynamic are um, preferences taken into account are, is there any kind of say in that kind of dynamic? I, I don't even know if that's a good question to ask, but it popped in my head. So I, I went there. <laughs> the way that I would respond to that is to uh, question what do you mean by preferences? Mm-hmm. And the reason that this is a valuable question is because this is the same question that often shows up with clients. Right. And particularly in the case with sometimes a client will feel like they need to be attracted to the surrogate partner in order to benefit from the work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. That. That is not the case. We don't want to rely on attractiveness. We don't want to rely on 
chemistry. Instead, this is about a conscious and deliberate building of intimacy, not just to have the experience of greater intimacy, but to understand how to build it. Mm-hmm. As we are doing exercises, I will be continually asking the client, and I would encourage the therapist on the case to ask these kind of questions also. I might ask the client, well, now that we did this exercise, do you feel closer to me or more distant or about the same? Any answer is okay. I don't have an agenda that the client feel closer to me as a result of an exercise. But what we do want to have is the awareness around it. That way they can start to understand, oh, this sorts of uh, interaction helps me feel closer to someone. This is part of building intimacy. And that is a lot more valuable. And that transfers to other relationships much more readily than mm-hmm. chemistry. Mm-hmm. Chemistry is unpredictable and capricious. And I actually think it gets in the way. It makes there's the potential that the work could be less effective if the client is strongly attracted to the surrogate partner. Mm-hmm. Right. I mean, our whole Hollywood uh, romantic comedy kind of model is that if I meet the right person with the right chemistry or the right body type or the right eyes or the right type or whatever it is, then that the inspiration from this person with these qualities will allow me to overcome my inhibitions and to feel what I want to feel. And that whole perspective is disempowering. Hmm. And I don't want to allow the client to continue to rely on these disempowering ideas. Hmm. So if the client does have a lot of chemistry with the surrogate partner, they might continue to believe that they can rely on that chemistry or that that chemistry is essential when it's not. Interesting. Hmm. I, I'm, I'm kind of in my head exploring how this really applies to some of the couples that I've worked with that have been married for many years and don't have that attraction or that chemistry or it's fizzled away. And that this idea of like a long, intentional, connected, intimate relationship is not dependent on that. And that it's so much more that healthy relationships are so much more. So I'm really glad that you spoke to that and how that applies to your work as a surrogate partner. Um, Because it is, it's hard to get people through that fantasy and the grief that that fantasy does not exist. Um, Mm -hmm. Yeah, I think that's so great. I'm, I'm really curious about you as a person and I'm glad that Angela kind of shifted in that direction. How did you get into this work? I guess the, there were a number of things that, that uh, had an influence in that. Probably the most important thing was in the year 2000, I started dating someone who had just been the victim of sexual assault. Just about three or four months before we met, she had uh, had an experience of date rape. 
And as the two of us were getting to know each other, there was the attraction between us. But I could also sense that she had a lot of fear, which is totally understandable because, of course, she wouldn't want to repeat that experience. Mm -hmm. So there was a lot of trust building that had to happen between us. And I realized that if I came on to her too strong or too fast, that she would get scared and withdraw. Mm And so I recognized that it was all about being attuned to her and matching her pace, you know, and moving forward in a way that she was comfortable that allowed us both to have the connection that we wanted. And this really, you know, it showed me that I have this capacity and that this is the sort of person I am, but it also greatly informed the work that I do because, you know, pacing and uh, meeting someone where they are and going ahead at their pace is really an important part of the work. So uh, another factor that influenced me is uh, through the early 2000s, I did a lot of workshops with this organization called the Human Awareness Institute. They offer workshops in love, intimacy, and sexuality. And that work has had a big influence on the work that I do now. And it was also from that community where a friend of mine told me of her intention to become a surrogate partner. Mm -hmm. And that was the first that I had heard of the work. She let me know of an organization that trains people to become surrogate partners. And I went through their training in 2008. So there are a number of organizations that train people. There's the International Professional Surrogates Association, or IPSA. And then there's also another organization called the Surrogate Partner Collective, which is going to be offering training for surrogate partners in 2023. So... I did my training in 2008, and um, yeah, those were probably the biggest uh, factors in, in becoming a surrogate partner. How, how did becoming a surrogate partner impact your personal relationships? Well, I was in a relationship uh, before I became a surrogate partner. In fact, I met my partner. Uh, in 2006. And on our first date, I told her of my intention to become a surrogate. And I imagined that she would not want to be interested in me. But instead, she started telling me why all the reasons why she thought, from her perspective, that I would be good at it and that I should do it. And And she said, yeah, I feel really safe and comfortable with you. I think you communicate really well. So she was very, very supportive. And we've been together ever since. Um, We've had our uh, 16th anniversary this summer. Oh, congratulations. So um, my partner is very supportive. I do know that other surrogates, Mm -hmm. uh, some of them, aren't in a long-term relationship the way I am. 
And some people report experiences where uh, people they're dating, their eyebrows grow up whenever they learn of their profession. Mm-hmm. And I know some people respond to that by dating in the open relationship or the polyamorous community, because here you have a group of people that are tend to be sex positive and tend to be open to the possibility of their partners being in other relationships mm-hmm. and engaging with other people in various ways. Yeah, I think that's I, I think that's really um, great for you that you have a partner that you're committed and, and long term with, but also that there is a space for people to explore how they want to be in partnership while also pursuing this career that helps many, many people. And so it's it's always I notice there is always this both and kind of situation where, you know, there's not one way to do things. There's not one way to experience things. Um what did what does your family think? I mean, because I'm a family podcast and I explore family dynamics. What did your family think? What do they think about you being a surrogate partner? Because I know even as a therapist, Angela, you you could speak to this too. Even just as a therapist, our families have opinions on our career and how we now show up as a person based on our experiences in our profession that impact us personally. So so what has it been like for you with your family? Well, my uh, sister knows about the work that I do. And back in about 2012, I was uh, planning to come out to my father mm-hmm. because up until that time, I hadn't um, told him of the details of, of my work. And as part of this process, I showed him a video that had a a male surrogate partner who was practicing at the time in Southern California. And it had an interview with him as well as a client that he had been working with and a therapist that, that was on the case as well. And I showed this to my father and it just looked like uh, the facial expression that he had was kind of stern and, um, and what, occurred to me at that time is my reasoning for wanting to uh, explain this to him. And the reasoning is because I want to be completely out and completely authentic with everyone in my life. That's, that's who I am. And that's what I want to be. But there's uh, uh, Dan, Dan Savage says there are things that a parent has a right not to know about their children. (laughs) And I just really believed based on that interaction that my dad didn't really want to know about this, about me, and that I was doing it for selfish reasons. And so since then, I basically just uh, tell them about my work as an intimacy coach, and that's been sufficient. But I haven't really gotten into the specific form or the specific modality where that shows up. So everyone in my life knows about the details in my life uh, to some extent, um, but just some people know it as intimacy coach rather than surrogate partner. 
you know, and a lot of people don't really know what surrogate partner means anyway. So, uh, mm-hmm. sounds like a reasonable filter to have. <laughs> right. Yeah. Exactly. Well, and that just really shows the complications of family dynamics that like in, in your everyday life, you, and even just now experiencing this moment with you, you're very calm, confident. Like I feel safe with you. I feel, and I'm like speaking to you through a computer screen, Mm -hmm. thousands of miles away. Right. But that you have this presence about you that I'm picking up on as being very genuine and authentic. And you've made this intentional choice not to share something with your father. Like family dynamics are crazy. <laughs> I just there's not really a, a way to kind of say that in a nice like wrapping with a bow. It's it they're hard, they're complicated. And I think that uh knowing what you're doing and having intention behind it, it sounds like you do that in your personal life and in your professional life. And that's really cool. Thank you for seeing me. I'm touched. Um, and I also want to point out that the same sort of family dynamics that we're talking about here, uh, clients who come into the work will have also, right? right? So they may feel uncomfortable, uh, talking about the fact that they're doing surrogate partner therapy with their friends and family. And as a result, they may not feel, they may not have access to their normal support structure. And this is yet one of another reason, one of the many reasons for the importance of having the triadic model and having the therapist on the case as well. Oh, definitely. So, so that makes me wonder what are the limits of your relationship? Like where kind of probably fitting in with like your code of ethics, like where does that relationship as client and surrogate partner, where does that end? Typically an average course of therapy might be 16 to 30 sessions. However, and it's understood right from the beginning that the relationship is temporary, that it will reach a time whenever it's going to end. But specifically how long that lasts is a decision that's collaboratively made between the three members of the team. As long as there's agreement that it continues to be useful, then it can continue. And I've had times where I met with a client more than 100 sessions over more than two years. Mm-hmm. So, but it is uh, going to reach a point sometime where it's going to end um, because it is inherently temporary. The surrogate partner client relationship is not going to be continued beyond the therapy. Right. This uh, relationship is for to achieve specific therapeutic goals with the intention of then the client being able to go out and apply their newfound confidence and skills in other relationships and in the broader world. And if they were allowed to continue the relationship with the surrogate partner, then that would interfere with meeting that objective. Mm-hmm. So, so. I can hear that there's like limits and boundaries to the work that you explore because it is very goal 
driven. It's, it's like you have a treatment plan, you follow the goals and objectives that align with this process. So you're not, please forgive me if this is a terrible question, but you're not like going to a wedding as their date or are you, you know what I mean? Like, are you exploring how they interact socially in the context of a relationship or I mean, how, how does, are you sitting in a room Are every session done in the same space? Are you going out to dinner and exploring that? Like, so how does that look? Social situations can be a part of the therapy if that's what they need help with. There have been times when I would go to a cafe with a client. It, I would say it doesn't happen very often because oftentimes we can work on these social skills in, in my office. Um, but there are times whenever we will go out. Um, yeah, I wouldn't say it's a lot, but it does happen. How do you know? Oh, sorry. Go ahead, Angela. Go ahead. Mm-hmm. I was going to, um, uh, Andrew, you outlined some of the um and Annalise emphasized some of the qualities of a surrogate, the patience, the communication, um, the, 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 the internal work on self to be aware and no boundaries and all of those things. I'm wondering um, what are some of the optimum, um, what makes an optimum client? Oh, an optimum client. Well, an optimum, so first I want to add one or two things to your list of what makes a good surrogate. Please, great. Um, I think it's important to have comfort with um, themselves and Mm -hmm. their own body, their own sexuality, as well as to have comfort with a full range of human emotions. Right. Because if I'm comfortable with my own anger or my own sadness, then I'm able to be present with someone else who's feeling anger or sadness. Mm-hmm. Right. If I'm not comfortable with my own anger, then I will have trouble being present. I'll have trouble being really with someone else mm-hmm. who's ex- expressing anger. This is important because there's always various emotions that come up in this process, particularly grieving, because if someone hasn't had the types of connections that they wanted to have in their life, if someone's had an experience or a, a life of lots of past trauma, whenever they start to experience healthy relating, and uh, intimacy, then they have to grieve all the times in the past when they haven't felt that way. Whenever they start to be treated with kindness and respect, then they remember all the times that they haven't been treated with kindness and respect. And there's going to be sadness. Um, You know, a lot of people have good reason to be angry. Mm-hmm. And they've also repressed that anger because we've tended to associate anger with violence. Right. Uh, but as we tease them out, we want to keep track of that 
No, you have good reason to be angry, right? Anger indicates when your boundaries have been violated. And that's happened to you a lot. Mm -hmm. right? Anger indicates that something happened that you didn't want. And when you start to realize that, oh, I didn't deserve to be treated that way, then anger is going to arise naturally. So then we can be more accepting of that emotion and we can also find ways to express it in a way that's healthy and not, uh, not violent and not blaming. We can use the energy of anger to set boundaries and to take care of myself. Anger is a self-validating emotion. So now I'll come back to your question about what makes a good client. So a good client has um, some sort of issue that is not, it's not purely physiological. For example, someone might have a sexual uh, dysfunction or have difficulty getting erections because of a cardiovascular problem. Mm -hmm. And if it's a, a physiological problem, surrogate partner therapy can't help them and is not recommended. But a lot of times it's some sort of emotional or psychological problem where they might have uh, a lot of fear and anxiety as a result of past experiences. Uh, a typical client will have a, will be motivated. Mm -hmm. Right. It's an ongoing process. They, they need to have a motivation to do months work worth of work with two professionals. Uh, a typical client or an ideal client is unpartnered. Mm -hmm. If they have their own partner, they can work on this issue with their partner. But the intention of surrogate partner therapy is for that partnership to be formed with the surrogate partner, hence the name. <laughs> and also a, a typical client or a ideal client will have uh, capacity for empathy and self-reflection. So they'll be able to have the awareness to be able to learn and to be changed by this work. Mm -hmm. And that kind of rules out uh, clinically diagnosable People who have uh, narcissistic personality disorder or, mm -hmm. um, or are uh, antisocial personality disorder, because they're probably not going to have the level of empathy and self-reflection that's, that's needed. I'm going to take a left turn real quick. And, and Annalise or Andrew, you can steer me way back. Um, Andrew, are you familiar with the, um, the culture of incels? Yes. I am. Okay. So like I said, if if this goes this way. Um wait, I, but for, for everybody listening and for me, can you explain what that is before you go on? If sure. you weren't going to. Okay. Yes. Um incel is a uh I call it a subculture. I don't know if that's an appropriate word or not. Um it stands for involuntary involuntarily celibate. It's primarily um that name is primarily for men. Um, who are involuntary, can't speak involuntarily celibate, um, therefore 
majority are virgins or have had very, very limited sexual experience. Um, and Andrew, I've been doing some research on them, um, the, the culture in general, the, the idea. I'm wondering because, because of the extreme nature of some of the culture is not safe. They have, you know, um, again, every, everything's a spectrum. The incel movement has gone um, to the extreme where some people have become violent and harmful of other people. So I'm not talking about the extreme of the outliers. I'm talking more so about the culture in the, the culture within the culture of that. Oh, I'm just going to generalize the 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 30 year old man who has never had sex who wants to have sex has trouble relating to women um has shut down the idea of it's never going to happen for me so i'm just going to always be celibate i'm just going to i'm a i'm a victim to my circumstance women don't like me so without without the hatred without obviously there's going to be some of that anger that you spoke about um do you think this would be <laughs> This could be a treatment goal, um, a treatment option for that kind of ideal. I guess it depends on the motivation okay. that they have. Yes. And, and what is their intention behind okay. it? Beautiful. Yep. Because if their intention is to find ways to relate with people differently, mm-hmm. And to learn skills to be able to connect better, to be more confident, to feel more worthy, to feel less entitled, and to uh, to realize that um, that people are, you know, with any relationship, there's what's attributable to the first person, what's attributable to the second person. And uh, what's uh, common or what's attributable to the specific interaction or the relationship between them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And now the danger of some of the more radical parts of incel culture is that they've started to believe that women have all the power and that they are disempowered and that they should therefore be able to take what they're entitled to through violence if necessary. Right. Right. And so then they've gone more into blame than seeing it as a dynamic that they are contributing to. Mm. And so if they are open to seeing what they are doing to contribute to the dynamic and Mm -hmm. exploring if there's different ways that they can relate with people that might get a better response, then that might be an option. However, if if we we don't want to give someone an opportunity to act out their entitlement. Right. Right. We don't want to give them a surrogate partner to blame. Right. That wouldn't that wouldn't be healthy. And uh, and I kind of want to give an example from my own personal experience of where um, such a thing might be helpful. 
You know, I used to do a lot of salsa dancing back in the day. And there was this one point where I had been away from salsa dancing for a year or two. And then I came back into it. And whenever I started salsa dancing again, I noticed that everyone I would ask would say no. And I started to kind of have an attitude about it. Like, as I was asking someone, I was already expecting her to say no. And I already had resentment about it. And when I realized that, then I became aware of how I was being in the dynamic. And so I, I consciously changed what I was doing. And I said, well, I'm just going to ask someone. And if they say no, I'm going to send them love and gratitude. <laughs> and, and I noticed that when I did that, that all of a sudden people started saying yes and, and dancing with me. So it became really clear about how my attitude was impacting the interaction. <laughs> so if someone is um, open to looking at it from that perspective, mm -hmm. then, then it could be helpful. Mm -hmm. I just think that that's such a beautiful point and, and so important again, not, not just within my specific example of, of the culture of incel, but in, in the idea that a person can create to use Annalise's, um, word she uses with me all the time in, in, in our work together, um, They've created the narrative that I am not going to get somebody to dance with me. I'm not going to get somebody to like me. I'm not going to find love. I'm broken. I'm wrong. I'm X, Y, and Z. And so, so, so your um, approach with, with the surrogate partnership, I think is, could be so vital in rewriting the narrative and rewriting their script because now they have genuine and authentic. I think were words that you used at the start of interactions that destruct, deconstruct their narrative of people don't like me. I'm unlovable. I'm untouchable. I'm, you know, and, in, and, and that I'm entitled to these things and I should demand them. It's like you said, with, with one of your examples of the communication, may I, will you, it's, it's asking a question, not demanding or, um, mm -hmm. yeah. So Fascinating. Part of healthy boundaries is allowing someone else to be able to set their boundaries. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. So That's whenever good. I make a request, then I have to face the possibility that the answer mm -hmm. might be no. But it might also be yes. And doing these kind of exercises builds up a sense of worthiness. Oof. I start to realize that I get to, right? Sometimes people believe that, oh, if I make a request and someone says no, that I did something wrong to make that request, or I shouldn't have made that request in the first place, or I didn't deserve it. But part of what we learn is that we can actually hear that and not take it personally. <laughs> it doesn't... I still get to want what I want, even if another person wants something different. Mm -hmm. 
And then, then we can start to see boundaries not as ending or rupturing the relationship, but we can start to use boundaries to build the relationship and to build intimacy mm-hmm. because intimacy is predicated on both persons being authentic and having their genuine uh, authentic wishes and desires as well as their boundaries and things that they don't want to do. Hmm. Mm, I think that's beautiful. I I love that I can see this client as a person who deeply wants to connect with others, feel safe, feel loved, feel seen, and has not had the ex- like opportunity to experience that in a safe way. And that this client has a place where they can do this within safety with this, these boundaries, learning how to explore themselves in context of a really like, I can see this client so clearly. I know this client. I have these clients. Mm-hmm. And that really destigmatizing surrogate partner therapy helps provide opportunity for people to experience these. So I appreciate and value that you come here and speak in other places about it. I didn't know about it. I know many of my listeners who are family and friends <laughs> don't know about it. Um but but really for me, I think the most beneficial thing was understanding the importance of relationship and outside of sexuality, outside of sex and, and all that. That intimacy is not about that. And I think many people are taught, especially where I come from, New Mexico, Catholic culture, we're taught that intimacy is sex. And this is not true. And mm-hmm. that what you're really working with here is kind of helping people to experience intimate relationships that don't necessarily have to do with sex are separate from that and that could just be a part of it later in their in the experience but for me that's a really important thing as I kind of explore myself as a marriage and family therapist my own sexuality my own experience with sex and what I've been taught this was important for me to have this opportunity to talk to you about it so that I could understand what surrogate partner therapy is so that I can be a part of that process of destigmatizing it and helping my clients, people I know and love to have this opportunity. I don't know if there's anybody in New Mexico doing this, but I know that people everywhere would benefit from having a surrogate partner or surrogate partner therapy involved in their practice as therapists, as people. So I'm just really grateful that you you came in and did this. Mm-hmm. Yes. I want to piggyback on that. It's the same skill to be able to receive pleasure when your genitals are being touched as it is to receive pleasure when your cheek is being touched Mm -hmm. or when your hand is being touched. Mm -hmm. And consequently, because of the way that we break things down and work with less triggering situations first the vast majority of the of the work is done with our clothes on yeah well and how powerful to be vulnerable with someone and feel safe to be seen and truly seen with clothes on and and feel like someone just saw right into my soul like that to me is where healing happens and that's why i love being a relational therapist because I believe that relationships heal 
And so surrogate partner therapy like aligns with that so much. And if I ever had the opportunity to be a part of a triad and experience that amazing growth for a client, like I would, I would, I would feel grateful. And that I think stems from conversations like this, where we grow and expand our, our understanding of how this field, mental health and, and relational health, like how that really helps people. I don't know. I don't even, I feel like I'm rambling because I'm just so excited that (laughs) that this happened, that I've grown immensely in just this last hour. Hmm. Clinicians and therapists often find that for the clients that can benefit from this, it can help them get through stuck places and it can greatly um, accelerate the work that they've been doing with the client. So, and a lot of the therapists I know that are committed to this work really, you know, value, they, they appreciate the transformations that, that can happen. I think, right. As, as I'm listening to both of you talk, I'm thinking about not only from the client perspective of going back to, um, that that self-awareness, that self-recognition of, um, oh yeah, I might, <laughs> I might want my cheek touched before I want my genitals touched, or that is more intimate than the other touch because the other touch has lost its meaning in trauma and life and experience and all those things. So, um, so again, getting that, getting, getting people into their bodies to recognize what is meaningful and important to them. Mm-hmm. In a very simplistic nutshell, is is my purpose? Is what do I want? Do I want somebody to to touch my cheek when I'm crying? Do I want somebody to comfort me when I'm when I'm feeling those feelings of anger? Do I want what What do I want? And and who am I? And then how do I show up for my children, my my parents, my coworkers, etc. The other thing that popped in my head too is how powerful this could be because of the limits of my job where my ethics and my board regulations and and not my personal ethics, but my my ethical codes limit me. And so being in a triad with a surrogate partner to be able to touch somebody's cheek with permission, with boundaries, with ethics, with all of these things, um, feels like it does empower me in my work as a clinician to be able to have a third person in that dynamic to, um, to do what almost I feel like I can't not to say that I haven't hugged or experienced intimacy, (laughs) non-sexual, perfectly ethical. Um, but we have, we have a different kind of intimacy with our clients, but, um, but to, to team up that approach again, holistic, important, Mm-hmm. dynamic, um, all of those things. So yes, I appreciate this conversation greatly. What was the first comment that you just made, Angela? I was going to respond to it, but I forget what it was. Um, first, I talked about the client and their, um, oh, the, 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 the cheek being more intimate than the genital touch. That's what it was. Yes. Um, thank you for reminding me. Uh-huh. Because a lot of times when we ask people, what do you want, particularly those who have been socialized as people pleasers, <laughs> they respond with what they think they should want. Yeah. Oh, that's so, that's such a good point to make. 
And in this process, we want to help people get in touch with what they actually want. Totally. Yeah. Right? Instead of all these ideas about who, what they taught, what they should want, or mm-hmm. what they're supposed to do to show up for other people, mm-hmm. and all these other factors. <laughs> That's exactly right. Well, Andrew, I can tell that you're very passionate about the work you do and that you are on fire for surrogate partner therapy. You're an activist for surrogate partner therapy and I think really changing the lives of many people. How can my listeners learn more about you or surrogate partner therapy? I know you said there's some trainings. So um, help, help the listeners learn how to connect more with that. Okay. My personal website is surrogatepartner.us. And so there's loads of information and videos up there, including one, actually, I didn't mention earlier, a lot of the exercises that surrogate partners typically do with clients can also be used by therapists Mm. with couples and in other contexts. And in fact, last year, Dr. Heather Howard and I uh, presented at the ISWISH conference. ISWISH stands for the International Society for the Study of Women's Sexual Health. And in that presentation, I talked about the sorts of exercises that I might do with a client in the surrogate partner therapy context. And then Dr. Howard describes how these exercises can be modified or expanded to be used in other contexts like with clients and couples counseling or in research or in other situations. So that's on the, uh, that's on my website and in the interview page. And that's also very useful. Another useful resource, especially for therapists is a course that I developed called collaborating with surrogate partners in the triadic model. It's a three and a half hour course that, talks about the therapist's role in every stage of the process, starting with how to evaluate clients and whether they're appropriate, how to help set client expectations, how the ongoing collaboration with the surrogate partner happens, as well as some things to watch out for. And anyone who's a member of ASECT can get ASECT continuing education credits for taking it. I also developed a course called How to Help Generalize Surrogate Partner Therapy mm-hmm. because I think that helping the client to generalize these specific experiences that they're having with one specific person to other relationships and to their life outside of therapy, that's really the essence of what we want to accomplish with this work. Mm-hmm. And so I've created a specific course that talks about there are concrete interventions that can be taken both by surrogate partners and by collaborating therapists to support clients in this generalization process. Both of those courses, as well as lots of other information, can be found on the website of the Surrogate Partner Collective, which is just surrogatepartnercollective.org. On there, there's a code of conduct. Uh, a formal statement about 
the ethics and legality of the practice, mm-hmm. as well as uh, a, some blog posts that I wrote about how a surrogate partner therapy has evolved and changed since it was first conceived by Masters and Johnson. So I can Great. send you those links if you can put them in the show notes. Oh yeah, I will definitely put all those links in the show notes. And then I'm curious, will people, whether it's a collaborating therapist or a client, where's the best resource for them to find a surrogate partner in their area? Because I know you're in, you're in San Francisco, um, Angela's in New Mexico, and I live in Florida. <laughs> so <laughs> how, are we, how are we to know who's um, you know ethical, kind of being guided by the same um, sort of ethical code as you are? Where do we find these people? Well, there are two different organizations that can make referrals. There's the Surrogate Partner Collective, as well as the International Professional Surrogates Association. Uh, The International Professional Surrogates Association has a link on their website that says find a practitioner that has a map of the certified surrogate partners throughout the country. And then they also have a referrals coordinator that you can contact. The referrals coordinator might be aware of interns or other people in the internship of their training that they don't show up on the website Mm -hmm. because those are only for certified members. But the referrals coordinator will know of other options as well. Great. Oh, thank you. That's very helpful. Uh, well, I mean, I think, I think this is a great place to end. I think this is a lot of information for people to kind of absorb and process. I'm glad there's resources they can go to. I'm certainly going to check them out as a professional. Um, and again, I'm just so grateful that you joined me on this podcast and, and that Angela, you could, could kind of help guide the conversation as well. And we explored so much. I'm, I'm going to listen back to this several times and really like think on on all the things that you've mentioned so thank you andrew so much for joining thank you for having me it's been a pleasure to talk with you both thank you if you want to hear more from the good the bad the family please subscribe or you can find me on instagram and twitter at a lucero mft thanks for listening licensed and trained marriage and family therapist, but this podcast is not a replacement for therapeutic advice. If you need help finding a therapist, visit psychologytoday.com to find a therapist in your area.